0: I'm Andrew Biggers, and you're listening to Squawk Talk. My guest today is the legendary Dr. Bob Blackburn. He is the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society, author of 26 books, regular contributor on the History Channel, and is considered Oklahoma's chief historian by state politicians and scholars alike. During his successful and equally fascinating career, Bob spearheaded the construction of the larger-than-life Oklahoma History Center, which stands today just east of the state's capital in Oklahoma City. I was fortunate enough to have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Blackburn via Zoom on the morning of Wednesday, September 2nd. Without a doubt, Dr. Blackburn's in-depth knowledge of history and awareness of current events are demonstrated right from the get-go. I'll just start by asking you, um, how many books have you written? I've, heard, I've seen some, some uh, differing numbers. The one I saw most recently was 22, is that correct?
1: Well, I'm, it's up to 26 now, and I've got number 27 in the pipeline. We're working on captions right now. That'll be out in November, which is the history of Fred Jones Industries. It's another corporate biography.
0: How many of your books have been corporate biographies?
1: I would guess about half of them, and I've done that intentionally because when I became, when I was in graduate school in the 1970s and, and then started working at the Historical Society, I like to plan, I like to review, I like to have a, a course that we can, we can take to, to correct any problems or to take advantage of strengths or to work on a weakness. And as I analyzed what had been done with historical society over the years, there was too much emphasis on 19th century Indian history, the land run era in Oklahoma City in particular, and very little done on western Oklahoma, very little done on Tulsa, very little done on diversity, African-American history, women history. Right. Uh, but the biggest gap that I found was in the history of free enterprise in the state. Academics who are doing research are not going to be drawn to doing the history of a corporation. Generally, they're going to do the labor strikes. So they're going to do how you know, someone's destroying the environment. It's, it's just not natural. So it hadn't been done. So I decided I needed to take that on personally as well as at the institution And I finally did enough of these businesses where I had a grasp of the history of free enterprise in the state and was able to do an 8,000 square foot exhibit called Crossroads of Commerce, a history of 300 years of free enterprise in Oklahoma. And largely my books have given me that things like doing the history of Sonic, America's Drive-In, Love's Travel Stops, Country Stores, Frankfurt Short and Brugia Architects, Jack Zink and, and the John Zink Company in Tulsa. So I did enough of statewide businesses to get a, a real handle on it from the intellectual point of view to be able, because to, to do an exhibit, you got to narrow a broad complex topic down to a simple format. So where you might want to tell the story of the complexity of, a, of route 66 and it's, and it's impact on commerce. You have to say that in 250 words. Right. And so the, 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 the more I know, actually the easier it is to simplify. And so, uh, so my, that's where my personal historical career kind of overlapped with my professional career of serving you and the citizens of the state and trying to decide what stories do we tell? What do we collect? Like my work with the Oklahoma publishing company and and the Gay Lords, for example, and doing the history of the state fair of Oklahoma and some other books of similar nature of Oklahoma city. I was able to get the Chamber of Commerce collections, 700 volumes of economic history going back to 1898. I was able to get 1.8 million photographs from Opoco that we now have online. So it's all kind of come together. So a personal historian, prof- public historian, getting the collections, telling the story, and really hopefully helping people understand the Oklahoma story.
0: Well, and I'm sure as you progress and continue to um, succeed in your field, you know, because I've seen praise from uh, former governors for you calling you the state's historian and just like really cool stuff, not to mention a photograph with Ken Burns, which I really want (laughs) to find out about in a moment. Um, I'm sure that process probably gets easier, right? Accumulating these collections and gathering
1: them. It does because, you know, the ability to do your job, whether you're doing a radio show, or you know wherever you're going in your career, and on my career, I decided it was going to be public history. I made that decision in graduate school. I I never pursued a teaching job at a university. I was doing enough in public history in graduate school. I knew that I had an affinity for that, and that, that my skill sets match that because I'm I'm very organized. I'm, I'm uh, production oriented. I want to I want projects. I want to complete it. I'm not satisfied if I don't have something to do. So I decided public history was it. And what my books have done and my 100 speeches a year now for 40 years, literally, I've, if you multiply that out, I've given somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 speeches around the state and all these little towns. I've given speeches in towns of 200 people, as well as many in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, of course. And it's allowed me to get around the state and understand the people I serve, and then hopefully working through our 30 some museums and sites because we have 30, more than 30 museums and scattered around the state. I've been able to work with the city of Tulsa on a variety of things. I was chairman of the Tulsa Race Rack Commission in 97 and 98. I'm on the executive committee of the new museums be developed there on Greenwood Rising. We're developing the new museum, OK Pop. We've reinvented museums such as Route 66, the museum in Enid. Uh, we're working on a, a revival for the museum Will Rudder's Memorial. Well, my accumulated skill sets as a historian, as a public servant, understanding the state, and then working with the legislature and establishing relationships with the philanthropic community, knowing the people at the foundations, knowing the business leaders like George Records or Marvin Jairus or these other people who have built these companies, it's given me connections to be able to to connect the dots and to pull the pieces together to get something done, to say... this is where we need to go. This is going to serve this purpose. It's going to take care of this weakness. So if we need to understand race relations better, my work with Clara Luper's family and getting the Clara Luper collection in on the Sidians. And right now, a professor at OU and I are revising Behold the Walls, Mrs. Luper's book, into a second revised edition with annotations, with a bibliography, a new preface. Hopefully that will allow people to understand race relations better if they understand Claire Luper better and what those 14 kids did on August 19th, 1958, walking into a hostile environment of a downtown restaurant that would not serve people of, quote, color. Well, hopefully what I do helps us all understand that better, as it does understanding free enterprise better, encourage people to, hey, this big world is out there. If you'll take a risk, invest, find others who share your dream, work hard enough, persevere through those ups and downs like the COVID, you too can be a successful business person. Or if you want to change society, you can do it as a historian. You can do it as someone on radio. You can do it uh, just by joining uh, a local effort to make a difference. So you're heard with Black Lives Matter or women need to break through the glass ceiling you know, we can make a difference in our lives. And pulling together a greater understanding of who we are, the world we live in, what's led us to this point in our lives, and then how we can make a difference. Well, all that comes back to understanding our culture, our society, where we've been, uh, and to recognize the opportunities to deal with challenges. Well, that all comes back to understanding more history and more of who we are. And I've just been so Blessed to, to be a part of that process of gathering the stories, sharing the stories, and understanding a little better, uh, for f- now going on 41 years.
0: You know, one of the things that I found very interesting when researching you was because you had mentioned it in email with me that your parents went to, was it called Central State College at the time? That yeah. was UCO, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and that you grew up in Edmond, and then I saw that your mother was Ida B. the kind of like Oklahoma television pioneer. Could you tell me a little bit about her role or or her influence in your life and also what that was like seeing
1: her uh, at work? Well, thank you. Well, my parents were in public service. Uh, My dad was a highway patrolman. He served World War II, came out of the war. uh, And before he finished college, he got a job as a highway patrolman. He was a football player. He played at Wyoming University, played in the army. I'll never forget, I asked dad one time, what'd you do in World War II? He said, "Played football on the base. And <laughs> the college Say they beat Texas A&M twice with the base team. But he came out, big, tough guy, highway patrolman back when you had to use your fists. Uh, and so he was a public servant. I saw that as a kid. Uh, but then my mother was a teacher and did an audition in 1958 for a children's show syndicated out of Baltimore called Romper Room. And got it. She was a talented uh, person uh, with just a way with people, charisma, uh, real pretty, talented, good singer. And she got that. And that led to a career in television at K.O.C.O. That was a brand new station. In fact, it was still uh, licensed out of Enid when she started with him in 58. In 1960, it moved to Oklahoma City. Dean McGee, John Kirkpatrick, a group of business people bought the station and expanded her role and wanted, her, her task was to promote Oklahoma City. And she did over 3,000 shows. I hadn't thought about that, I've given 3,000 speeches, she did 3,000 shows. But uh, over from 1958 to 1975, she was on daily. And it was communication. It was saying, this is what's going on in our community. Here's what you can do to enjoy your quality of life. Uh, she would bring on people who had a good cause to serve. You know, you're raising money for this good cause to take care of, of infants who, who are suffering. Let them have a voice to the public. And so, to a degree, that was all about communication, about trying to make a difference, giving people a voice. That's what I've, I think I've tried to do in my career. Uh, try to understand the community, get us talking, create dialogue. Where Mom did it on her television set, 30 minutes at a time, five days a week. I've tried to do it, you know, every day of the year where we have this dialogue and we communicate and give people a voice to say, here's the story of cotton farmers, here's the story of civil rights leaders, here's the story of people building better highways, whatever it might be. It's this complex story, trying to, to, to listen to one voice at a time and then to collect it so we have a better way to understand it 100 years from now. So For example, at Black Lives Matter, I was really impressed with David Holt and as mayor willing to go down to the protesters, which he did the first night. He not only spoke, he stayed until midnight, listening to their concerns and answering questions. I said, David, I saw you on the film clips. You had a mask on. I want that mask to me. That is a symbol of what you were doing that night. You were overcoming the challenges of the COVID, people couldn't see, but you were still communicating. You overcame those challenges and you were willing to take that risk without armed bodyguards or sending the police in first, going in himself and having that courage to take a risk. And then saying, I hear you and creating dialogue. Uh, To me, that was impressive. And so I have that. He did a little story of who made the mask that night. Now I'm trying to get to JB to get the bullhorn that they use that night. To me, the bullhorn is another symbol of giving voice to someone who say, this is not right. Black lives matter. They were using that as a tool. That's a three-dimensional object that can be in an exhibit someday about civil rights. So just as we have things on the sit-ins in 1958, we need something from this moment in time in 2020. And I think that bullhorn is something that I want for this organization to be able to share the story in the future. So just like my mom, uh, she was communicating and I was at the studio a lot. She was, my parents were divorced early. So a single mom raising his two kids. I recognized women and the glass ceiling on women at the time and what she had to do to break through that glass ceiling. So I always admired that, that willingness. I became an advocate for women's rights, even in college. I worked on an off-campus newspaper. And I wrote the columns about women's rights and why, why did women have a curfew on college? When I started college, women had to be in the dorm by 9.15 on a weeknight or they got, quote, black marks. And their parents would be called if they weren't following these curfews. And the guys could stay out all night, get drunk, come in. Dorm mom would help you get to your bed. It was just this, this unjust. So I was writing about that, you know, even in 1970 and 71. But I saw my mom fighting through that. I saw other women who were her friends who were doing things in the community, like the Lou Kers of the world, uh, the Bobby Burbridge Lanes of the world. I got to know those women as a kid because of my mom. And so that kind of put me in a direction to, hey, let's do you can do something about this. You can speak up. You have voice, you know, work with your friends, your family. If you get a public position like director of the Historical Society then you can do an exhibit on the ERA, or an exhibit on women in our history as we're doing this year. So mom really gave me a lot of inspiration, uh, taught me communication uh, skills uh, and how to work with others. uh, That we can't do it alone, we have to speak uh, together. And that if you can find a, a common voice and others to share, that we're a lot stronger together than we are divided. And as I look at our community, whether it's the OCU community, the Oklahoma City community, the state community, the national, the world community, if we're unified, we're a lot stronger. When we're divided, we're weak. We're in a point in our history right now where we are too divided, polarized even. Uh, It makes us weak. How How do we find the ways to break through and deal with the challenges? How do we move forward and encourage people to take a risk that's not good just for them, What's good for everybody. We've got to have this dialogue, and right now that dialogue has been broken. Uh, We've got to find a way to to work our way out of this. Uh, Mom taught me to communicate and uh, that there's a bigger world out there, much bigger than ourselves, and how can we do something about it?
0: Just to add on to that point, looking at the world now with the pandemic and with civil unrest and a lack of uh, civility in our discourse, I suppose, um, do you think that it's fair to call this unprecedented or, as a scholar of history, can you find any kind of similarities just within the state's history or the nation's history to compare what's going on now to?
1: Great question. And uh, a good example. Recently, I've had several people come to me all alarmed about the Supreme Court decision on Indian reservations in Oklahoma. And they're, they're acting like, hey, this has never happened before. Like, how are we going to deal with this crisis? Are we going to lose our title to our house and the mineral rights below the surface of our land? Are we going to have to, to report to you know this alarmist attitude about, well, no. This is, this is part of a continuum of dealing with tribal sovereignty. It's a complex story, it goes back 250 years. Uh, it's been part of our history. We will work our way through this. People will come together, they'll have dialogue, we'll work on agreements, we'll find protocols. To me, I am not alarmed at all. In fact, I'm encouraged by tribal sovereignty. I think this is off, off your topic, but the future of rural Oklahoma and economic development as rural Oklahoma is being depopulated, mm-hmm. as agriculture and oil become less labor-intensive and fewer people can make a living that way, well, what's gonna take its place? To me, it's tribal enterprise, because that's where many of the Indian people are. And so as the tribes work with their people, it's going to spill over into the other communities. That and higher education, I think, are the two keys to the future of rural Oklahoma. But getting back to your subject, when I, we talk about uh, intolerance, let's just use that right now. We have uh, this, this thing of people on the far left are intolerant of anybody on the right who won't say yes this is this is all totally wrong we got to just overhaul the system and then people on the right saying wait a minute these marxist radicals marching for black lives matter and they stop right there well we've had so many moments of intolerance in this state uh, i've always wanted to do an exhibit called the tolerance of intolerance has how the majority who may be willing to say oh yeah well, i can see why black lives matter is is justified that we need to consider, that there has been prejudice in our society, in our institutions. We've got to do something about it, but at the same time, hey, no, we don't need to overthrow the system. And I heard on the NPR the other day that the institution of policing started as a white supremacy expression. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, but that's the idea of taking an extreme view Uh, and almost an intolerance that we have police. Well, of course, we need police for a variety of reasons, and it is not white supremacy. Uh, At times, it kind of overlaps with that, but it was never the reason that police forces were created. So let's have dialogue. Why? What's the history of police forces? Where did it begin? Why? Why did the five tribes adopt police forces called the light horsemen in the 1820s and 30s? Well, it was to protect property rights. Uh, we're slaves property, yeah, so there is a little overlap, but understanding these helps us understand today's uh, issues. But uh, no, we've gone through issues with tribal sovereignty, we've done it with, with racial injustice, we've done it with uh, people wanting to oppress and suppress freedom of speech. 1917. Woodrow Wilson, one of the most progressive presidents in our history, who led the progressive movement. What Theodore Roosevelt wanted to do, Wilson did during his eight years as president. Well, he supported the Aliens and Sedition Act that allowed the federal government to put people in jail for criticizing the government. Uh, Eugene Debs, the leader of the Socialist Party at the time, was put into jail based on, uh, his comments that today would be rioting in the streets. You've got to protect freedom of speech. Well, the president of the United States, the highest court said, no, you can do that. Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896, the Supreme Court said, yes, you can tell a person because of the pigment of their skin, where they can live, where they can go to school, where they cannot go. What are they limited to as if it's separate but equal? That was the law of the land that made all of that 20th century Jim Crow segregation legal. And and then as that is the law of the land, then people's hearts can't be there to say, let's build these bridges with our neighbors. And then you get misunderstanding and hatred and, and racial massacres like we had in Tulsa. And this misunderstanding and the divide grows of bitterness on one side and hatred and fear on the other. And then, how do we come back and say, no, let's bring it all back to you. This has been our history. But as a historian, and maybe at heart, I'm an optimist, basically, we're making progress. So, as people think, oh, it's all the seams are coming apart and the glue that holds us together as a, as a nation and a community, it's all breaking down. Uh, but we've got to be law and order, suppress freedom of speech, suppress these protesters or on the other side, we've got to overturn, we've got to abolish and defund police work. No, there's middle ground. And I have faith that we as a community will come to our senses at one point, we'll get through the crisis, we'll co- start considering, have dialogue, and come up with solutions to it. We will make progress. I have no doubt about that. My job as a historian is how do we document the conflict, the misunderstandings? How do we document the conversations that people are having, and, and make sure that in the future, we understand the Clara Loopers of the world, the Roscoe Dungees in the African American community, uh, the role of people like David Holt, who are willing to step onto that platform and say, I am here, I am listening. We've got to make sure that we understand how all of this progresses. And then I think the more people understand about it, they'll say, oh yeah, we are making progress. Uh, Is there still a glass ceiling on women? Yes, I see it. I understand it, but it is so much higher than it was in the 1960s when I started really understanding culture. Is there still racial injustice? Yeah, but it is nothing like it was in the 1960s. Uh, And then is tribal sovereignty changing our our relationship between individuals and government? Yes, but we've been there before. We worked our way through it. Is it good or bad? Well, it's going to depend on people making decisions and having dialogue and finding a way to say that this is the greatest good for the greatest number of people, and that's really what government is. It's all of us individuals, you and me, and everyone listening saying, I agree that I'm part of a community and I'm willing to pay my taxes. I'm willing to obey the law. And yes, I agree that we have these common needs for highways, public safety, to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. And yeah, we're willing to support it. But at the same time, we're going to preserve these liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that we will not let someone tread on me. Some take that to the extreme and use it in in a distorted way as we're seeing around the country right now. But government is nothing but us agreeing that we are going to live as a community. And that, yes, those laws need to change, and we call those laws, we call them constitutional amendments. Uh, We call it compacts with the tribes. This is going to always be evolving, and it always has been. And so to get alarmed that things are changing faster than they normally would, doesn't concern me. It may cause more conflict as you're trying to spin a little ahead of the time or accelerate what you see and what you're frustrated with. But I think that it'll all come back to this equilibrium and our culture has learned how to deal with these problems. The, the society is changing, the demographics are changing, the ethnic mix of the people making the decisions is changing. But, uh, I think the more voices you have in this public dialogue, the better. So, uh, a long answer to a very short question. Uh, yeah, I see progress. And uh, I, th- I think we'll work our way through all these issues. And uh, we'll get back to what some people say, hey, let's get back to normal. Well, normal is not going back to the 1950s. We don't want to go back. If, if you really understand the injustices and the glass ceilings on individuals, the lack of diversity, we don't want to go back there. Uh, we want to go forward we want to continue having this dialogue and trying to still come up with what's the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And hopefully our elected officials that we send to to Congress, the office of the president, the governor, legislators, city council people, county commissioners, school board members, you know, it goes all the way down to, you know, our college presidents and the boards of regents and my board of directors, people willing to serve the public as historians. You know, we've all got to to do our part in this and we've got to be involved. The minute that we retreat into hatred or uh, unrest, or we just want to tear down and go back to our social media where we're talking just other people who believe exactly what we believe, or turning on the TV that's kind of a narcotic for too many people to just be entertained where you don't have to think about anything. The minute that Everyone does that as the, as the time when we, we quit finding a way through all of these things. We've got to keep talking. Uh, and we've got to find ways to do it as, as we change. You know, our, our community organizations are not as vibrant now as they once were. We don't have bowling leagues. We don't have as, as much participation in parent-teacher organizations or rotaries or Lions Clubs, Guants Clubs. We see these things changing. But where are the new associations? And it's not on on our phones or our social media. It's got to be somewhere else. And it can't be where we all just get pulled into the same little ruts. We've got to be comfortable getting out of our ruts and seeing life through other perspectives. Uh, So how do we do that? I can't predict the future, but I think we will find those ways. And I think we will correct some of what's going on right now.
0: Well, and like you, um, just looking at history, I too am optimistic, you know, and I'm looking at it through a much less comprehensive lens than you are. But um, as a historian, what do you say, and this might be difficult to separate from the politics, so if you'd rather not get into it, we definitely don't have to, but um, what do you see or what are your immediate thoughts when you see efforts to revise history, such as what we've seen in the New York times, I believe it was, <clears throat> excuse me, the 1619 Project.
1: Uh, yeah, I've, I've dealt with that ever since I've been here. But each generation really will look at history with new eyes. And I encourage that. If you look at the history books written on Oklahoma, in as late as the 1960s, it was totally from a Western European, uh, early American nationalism point of view, we've got to conquer the wilderness. That the wilderness were the Indians and, and the trees and the wildness of nature. And progress was a matter of taming the wilderness. Mm-hmm. You saw it in movies with John Wayne, with the Indians up along the mesa as the symbolic wilderness that you had to conquer, defeat. You see it in Errol Flynn movies, you know, all of it. The movies were reflected, but you see it in the history books that, oh, yeah, the first wave were were the explorers, and then came uh, the trappers and the traders, and then came the ranchers, and then came the farmers with the soldiers to protect them and to push back the wilderness. And then then we succeeded in creating this wonderful place we call home. Well, that avoids the whole issue of American Indians. That avoided the whole issue of not everyone was free to make a choice of where to go and what to, to take on. It avoids the the issue that there were women involved in this process, but all of the people in the history books were men. If that had never changed, if someone had not said, we need to look at our history again, we would have been stuck, but it's gone on. People agreed that, oh yeah, we need to look at our Indian history through the eyes of Indians. And, and these writers like John Joseph Matthews, who was a mixed blood Osage, who wrote some of the most wonderful books in the 1930s, but consulting the tribal elders, In holding up their documentation and saying, I think that this is more accurate than what I'm reading in these government reports that were written to the eyes of a Western European way of looking at life. And he was rewriting history in the 30s. Angie DeBow would be one of those historians to rewrite history. Her book on exploitation of Indian people after statehood was not published by OU Press. It had to be done by uh, Yale University or uh, Princeton. And so they would publish her book about this exploitation of American Indians. People in Oklahoma did not want that history rewritten. To them, they were much more comfortable with the history that we conquered the wilderness and we brought civilization. And yeah, those Indians are better off now because they look like Western Europeans and Americans. Well, she said, no, no, no. There was a story there where these children were orphans and through the civil justice system, Judges were, were putting guardians in charge of their resources and their lives and stealing their resources and relegating them to poverty and saying, well, they're not really people. They're, quote, Indians. The civil and criminal justice system saying, we don't need to protect African-Americans. We will uh, we will tolerate vigilante justice in the lynchings as a way to keep them in their place, law and order. That would have been their idea of justice. We see that today around the country with with some people in very high places saying vigilante justice is okay. That's not okay. We know that. We look at history and see the abuses of that. I look at history differently than an Errol uh, Gibson, who was one of my mentors at OU, or Odie Falk at OSU. The reason I went to OSU, he was writing books, and I wanted to do the same thing. I look at our culture differently than either of those gentlemen the next generation of historians will look at it differently than i do. it's one reason i'm i've got a transition going here where i'm retiring. i still love what i do. i love coming to work every day. i love working with these people and getting the collections and telling the story. there's nothing more i would rather do. but i need to step aside. i'm 60. i'll be 69 years old next week. i've been here 41 years. we need a new set of fresh eyes looking at what we do, making sure that we are changing, we are adapting. well, Sometimes you get a radical idea, let's tear down all the statues. Let's obliterate all the names. You know, the, the, the minute someone says, we've got to tear down George Washington statues, that is not understanding this complex story. Was he a slave owner? Yes. Did he believe that they were subhuman? Probably. But if you look at George Washington's impact on our lives, or Thomas Jefferson, that people want to eliminate him from the history textbooks, The minute we do that, we cannot understand this progression of improving on the old ways. Uh, We cannot understand this evolution of, of individual liberty that is willing to fight for in this experiment called the American Republic, where people have a voice. Did everyone have a voice to elect those people? No, women didn't vote. They didn't vote in Oklahoma until 1918. So do we obliterate everything there that's associated with keeping women from voting or suppressing? African-Americans or owning slaves, it's pretty soon we're not going to understand where we are today if we don't do that. Now, do we need to celebrate it? Not necessarily, but those parts of their story, George Washington, we should celebrate him. He's the founding father. Without George Washington, we are so different today. Do we need to, to say, yes, this is one of our heroes? Yes. At the same time, we need to say one of our heroes should be Thurgood Marshall, who offered his skill sets to defend African-American rights in the 1940s and 50s. Yes, he should be celebrated for that. Should we celebrate all parts of, there may be parts of his history we may not admire, but should that give us a reason to tear him down and say, we don't need to celebrate Thurgood Marshall or Brooklyn T. Washington. Same with Thomas Jefferson and Washington. There are parts of their lives that we need to celebrate and cherish, and understand. But each new generation needs to look at it. So this whole idea of of rewriting history will happen. For example, I've been pulled into the whole conversation about the land run of 1889. Mm. Is that a symbol of suppressing Indian rights? Well, I've tried to explain it as a historian, I can give you a 60-minute lecture. It is part of the story, but it is not the story. It did not happen overnight. The land run of 1889 was not a signal that oh, we're gonna take all the land away from the Indians, and we're gonna give it all to white people. It's not that simple. I can name a dozen other events that are more important in taking land away from the Indians. That's a, it's a long, complicated story, the treaties of 1866, it's a very academic subject, but it said, we are going to take the land away from the Indians, we will force them to a lot. we will create a state. That was explicit in the treaties of 1866. Then you have Supreme Court decisions, congressional actions in the 1870s, and other things changing. Land Run of 89 was just in this, this series of events. But it is not a symbol of taking land away from the Indians. Is it part of it? Yeah, it's part of it. So it's statehood. There are some valuable lessons in all of that. So if we remove all of those reminders, then suddenly we're detached from who we are. We're not grounded, we're not rooted. Yes, we will change, history will be rewritten, but I think every generation has the responsibility to not lose control and let our emotions say at any given moment, well, yes, Black Lives Matter, so are we gonna tear down a statue of George Washington's slave arm? That's a a simple connection you can make, but it's a much more complex story. And as as you kind of shake your head and say, Well, yes, the emotions say we want to tear anything down that reminds us of this social injustice. Then we start losing the other parts of the story. And then if someone makes an attack on our freedom of expression, freedom to speak up together, together to protest, then we start losing our liberties and our freedoms. We've got to understand what George Washington fought for. The dream that Thomas Jefferson had while he was still had uh, All these problems in his personal life. The minute we lose Thomas Jefferson's dream of individual liberty in a society that has these basic freedoms is when we start losing the grounding in these ideas of of the American dream, and we drift off into tyranny. We have to know that, hey, these are not the right ways to go. Here's the direction we go. And the minute we lose our connections with, with history is a minute that I think we're in jeopardy.
0: And if anything, I would imagine that, as you said, these are important reminders, not just of where we've been, but how far we've come. And I think that ultimately someone like Washington or even someone as n- you know, newly controversial as Jefferson in the public eye, they do serve that purpose and it is of the utmost importance. When you're studying Oklahoma history, what consistently surprises or amazes you?
1: To me, the bedrock story, if there is a Bob Blackburn style of history, whether I'm doing a museum exhibit or writing a book or giving a speech, I've, I've, over the years I evolved, I wish I could go back in time and figure out really when I said this is the way I'm going to write books. It, it wasn't there in the early 80s, but it's there by the 90s. I can go back and look at my different books. And it's the fact that in Oklahoma, more so than some other chapters of the American story, it's a story of challenges and opportunities. We've had lots of challenges. We're an inland state. So in terms of commerce and economic development, we're limited. But at the same time, we're rich in natural resources, like coal originally, natural gas and oil more recent. But in grass, that can raise the cattle rich topsoil that's been coming down from the Rocky Mountains for 200 million years with erosion and the uplift of the Rocky Mountains. We've got these resources, but we've got this cyclical element of a climate that wet and dry years that's creating a challenge. We're subject to international markets. So in agriculture, you're, you're subject to challenges. You might have a bumper crop and the rains didn't, didn't fail you that year and the hail didn't destroy your crop. But suddenly, the price of cotton goes from 25 cents a pound to 3 cents a pound. And it costs two and a half cents to have it picked. That's a challenge. Or oil goes down to 10 cents a barrel, as it did for a while in 1931, when East Texas field blew in going with the Oklahoma City field. Well, these are challenges. Well, in Oklahoma, our challenges have been a little more dramatic than they have elsewhere. Indian people have had the challenges of of this assault on tribal sovereignty. African Americans have had the challenges of overcoming the culture of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation. Our women have had the challenges of fighting through that glass ceiling. Those of us have the challenges of dealing with a a diverse state, trying to find what do the people in Cimarron County have in common with the people in McCurtain County? That's like two Balkan countries, one on one side of the extreme and the other. It's just like saying, okay, you in England are going to figure out a way to work with you all in uh, in Vietnam and create this political body where you all can understand each other and do the things in common that serve you all. We're so diverse. Every border was created for a reason other than the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Diversity is part of our story. So the challenges are greater here. But what I love about Oklahoma history is that we've had the people who generally have come here And maybe it's when you're down on the ground and you're trying to get up and you're, you know, you've been knocked down and the referee's counting. One, two, three, four, five, six. You know, before you get to eight, you're saying, wait a minute, you get up. Oh, I'm not going to let that guy punch me in the jaw again. So you learn how to dip and fade. Well, we learn how to overcome those challenges. And so we're better trained on how to to recognize the opportunities. So at Tom Love who says? Who recognizes that the old way, the McGee way of selling gasoline is not going to work anymore because they can't compete with imported oil driving down the price of domestic crude of the majors from with the New York money or the British money or the Venezuelan money competing out here in the market. Well, he comes up with a new way, cheapest gas in town he calls it, that becomes loves country stores, that becomes loves travel stops and takes advantage of changes in small towns, the completion of the interstate system, the deregulation of trucking in 1979. He's there on the mat, unemployed, college dropout, two kids and a family to support. He finds an opportunity. Jack Zink and Tulsa, the same thing, it goes on and on. I can give you all these stories of people who have these challenges, who find the opportunities. And generally they do it through perseverance, they do it through hard work, they do it through creativity. So when people say, why do we have so many astronauts from Oklahoma or people in NASA? Well, because we're willing to work a little harder. We're willing to look for solutions. So you have the story of an Oklahoma kid who is on one of the consoles on when to fire the retro rockets. He's from Oklahoma. These people have learned how to deal with challenges. And we don't panic. We, we stay, we know that we can work a way through it this story of challenges and opportunities. So when I write the book of, of Fred Jones Industries, and finally his grandchildren, the Hall brothers of Fred, Boots, and Kirk, try to figure out how to use, build on top of a granddad's legacy, and suddenly they can't make a good, good amount of money through remanufacturing parts, or by selling Fords downtown or out on the mile of cars. Well, they, they change and they, they find a liquid position to go into venture capitalism, real estate development. That's why we have 21C hotel today. That's why we have more downtown housing. That's why uh, that foundation is supporting good causes around the city. Those three young men who are now my age learned how to deal with the challenges of a changing time. What granddad did in 1920 isn't working in 1980. On the coast where it's a little easier, those kids from Southern California, climate is so pleasant. Hey, the challenge is where's the best surf? You know, that's not going to force someone to learn how to deal with challenges or you get a third generation wealthy person out of New York city who doesn't really know challenges. All they know is, is how to invest. They're not really dealing with challenges of how to put food on the table, get a little money in their pocket to take care of their family. That's too easy. In Oklahoma, we haven't had it easy. Penn Square is a national story. The failure of Penn Square and the crash of oil and gas in the 1980s, creating this toxic real estate community with over 200 bank failures in the state. Talk about a challenge. I lived through that. I had a house that I bought in 1978 on the edge of Heritage Hills when it was still considered the ghetto by a majority of people so I was taking on that challenge. I wanted to live in a diverse community. My wife felt the same way. We wanted our kid to go to public schools to learn about culture. We didn't want them in this little ivory tower, private school out there in the burbs where everyone dressed the same, looked the same. We make it and made a choice. Suddenly, by 1985, I found the value. I owed twice as much as my house was worth. Did I walk away from the mortgage? of Many people, no, I, I made an agreement with that bank. I don't like the bank, but I'm gonna make my payments. Well, it paid off. I kept ownership, finally bought a couple of other homes, invested sweat equity. As a carpenter, I was able to work on them. until so I got to the point I could buy my dream historic home in Putnam Heights, built in 1927. It's a gorgeous house. You'll have to pull me out of there. My casket is, is the way I love this house. Well, it's because I took a risk in 1978. I persevered through the challenges of the 1980s. I kept improving and buying other properties around to protect the neighborhood, to work with my neighbors. Now it's called Heritage Hills. That's the Oklahoma way. So that's what I've learned about our experience. And then the other thing that has to be part of every story is diversity. We are one of the most diverse states in the union. More Indian people than even California. And that's not per capita. That's actual numbers. More Indian people. So where is the story of tribal sovereignty playing out in its most dramatic form? right here in Oklahoma. I intend to write a book about tribal sovereignty and the state of Oklahoma. We've had African-Americans here since the five civilized tribes came because they brought their own slaves. So our story of the African-American experience goes from slavery to freedom. Uh, when we talk about diversity, the land runs brought in diversity from around the world. Uh, when we talk about diversity, we're talking about the difference between that farm family in Roger Mills County that deals with drought in windstorms and poor topsoil. And then we talk about someone in Tulsa that's grown up in a, a, a nice neighborhood, two different worldviews. So you get those who support one political candidate, those who support another. Well, this diversity is there all around us. The differences between Oklahoma City and Tulsa. I've done a museum exhibit called Two Sides of One Coin. Yeah, the two states are in the borders of Oklahoma, but they're different for these reasons. How do we take those differences, find common ground and work together? Dewey Bartlett as mayor, Mick Cornett as mayor found a way to have conversations. That's continuing with G.T. Bynum and David Holt. Uh, I can see progress there. The Turnpike Wars, uh, it's not a Cold War anymore. It's still a war, there's still urban rivalry. So if someone wants to build a plant to produce vehicles like Tesla, oh, they're gonna fight like the Dickens to get it. But there are bigger stories. If you're having dialogue, find the common ground, agree when you're going to have some kind of opposition. So that diversity in this state helps define our story. But the minute we say, let's build a wall around Oklahoma and not welcome in immigrants, the minute we turn our backs on diversity and say that's a weakness instead of a strength, that's when we start losing the potential to grow and to prosper. We have to embrace diversity and say it's part of who we are. Is it easy? No, it's not easy. It's painful at times, but let's build on it. Let's say, man, that was a mistake. Or, whoa, look at the, the courage of, of Ada Lois Sipiel Fisher to try to enroll at OU in 1946, surrounded by nothing but white faces and knowing that she was going to be abused. I love that courage of a woman of color. Let's take those stories and say, let's embrace that diversity and empower the next young African-American female coming out of college and say, you too can change this world. Start the business, go into public service, do a radio show, Uh, do something that may not make you wealthy, but it gives you satisfaction. It makes you proud of who you are and you know you've made a difference. The minute we say Indians need to just be good little Americans and give up their native ways and their ancestral traditions is the minute we lose the strength of that. We've got to have that dialogue so I think challenges, opportunities, how people have dealt with that, and then diversity would probably be the two main themes. If I ever write a short history of Oklahoma, those will be the, the themes that I use throughout.
0: Because I'm from Dallas, Texas, actually. And until I read Sam Anderson's Boomtown, you know, I had really no grasp on the elaborate and complex and, again, diverse history of Oklahoma and still that's just barely scratching the surface. I was going to ask you, one of your main accomplishments is establishing the Oklahoma History Center and then becoming an affiliate with the Smithsonian and the National Archives. You've been credited as spearheading this and I was gonna ask you, how did this come about? How were you able to successfully do
1: this? All of these things are a team effort. No one accomplishes big things alone, whether you're an elected official or an executive director of an organization or president of a university. We do it because we have a team behind us, and we have partners. So how do you find, and I, and I bring it back to, to three key elements. One, you have to have higher standards. Well, the, the quote, hysterical society of the 1970s uh, was not the way to get the public support to say, yeah, we're gonna give you the resources to build something like the History Center. So we had to work on higher standards and, and turn our backs on, well, mediocre is okay. That's really where the historical society was well, we might be mediocre, but yeah, that's okay. That's Oklahoma. Do we deserve more? Probably not. And so we had to turn our backs on mediocrity is okay and say, no, we can do better. We can be Smithsonian quality. And that took a while to change the culture of an organization. I wasn't the only one as the the preacher at the pulpit saying we can do better. There were others. Secondly, we had to be more efficient. We had to get our act together. So if, if I said donate $100 to me, and I'll invest it in a new exhibit. Well, if you don't have faith that I'm going to invest that wisely, you're not going to give it to me. It's like any salesman saying, hey, invest in my product. If they don't believe it's going to mow their lawn better, or if it's not going to protect their house, they're not going to buy it. Same here with history. I need to convince you, the public, these donors, governmental officials, governors, legislators, if you share your resources with us, I'm going to invest it. I'm going to leverage it. I'm going to turn your dollar into $10 and I've got to make you believe it. And then third, I've got to find those partners, Uh, the partners to donate the money, the partners to vote for a bill, giving me the authority to even do a history center, uh, to make sure that the board of directors understands where we're going to have the team put together to be efficient. And those who all agree and believe you can't be divided. We were a divided organization, schizophrenic in some ways. I've had a small role in that, although people see me and identify me with those changes, but it's Many people, it's the Dan Provos of the world, the Sandy Strattons and Kathy Dixons and the Bill Lees and Denzel Garrison's on the board and the Jim Waldos, it goes on and on. But I know when I say that's the hill we're gonna tackle, these are the standards we're gonna establish. I've communicated enough with my board members, with my staff members, with the constituents, the memberships, the legislators to say, I think this is where everyone can support us going. So yeah, I've had a role in that of providing the direction. Once we accomplished those three things, and that was an evolutionary thing through the 90s. And finally, by 98, the legislature, we kind of backed into the history center. Some legislators wanted more space in the Capitol, so they wanted the Supreme Court out. Some Supreme Court members wanted our old building. They said it looked more like a judicial building than a historical society, was not serving us well. So we said, yeah, give us something new. Others said, let's clear out Lincoln Boulevard where prostitutes were more numerous than, than residents. And so all of this came together at a a pivotal time, just when I was in the perfect seat to do something about it. I became executive director in 98. And so just as those decisions were being made, I was in and said, hey, don't forget about us. And they were gonna shuffle us to the side with a small amount of money. They didn't care where we went, we were a sideshow. Well, I had to make sure we weren't a sideshow. Frank Keating did not want us to be a sideshow. So as governor, he was part of this. His secretary of state, Tom Cole, who's now a congressman from Oklahoma, was my inside information. A Kelly Haney, chairman of appropriation in the Senate, one of the American Indian Center. And so kind of opened the door for us. And so I was there working with those above who had the resources. And then I convinced them that, hey, if you all will help us with some state resources, I'll turn around to the general public and find those who will donate money. So the final deal, and the way it came out eventually was we as taxpayers invested $50 million in this place, but the non-state side invested $12 million. So I found the one Oaks of the world. I ended up doing their centennial history. Uh, the Aubrey McClendons, who was probably one of the most outstanding philanthropists in all of Oklahoma history said, yeah, I'm in for 500,000. And Devin would say, we're in for a million, in as much foundation. And the Gaylord family saying, we are going to invest. And then over 4,000 individuals donated at least a dollar to the Oklahoma History Center project. And we did it. And we kept the standards high. We found the players to do it. So that's when I recruited Dan Provo. I said, History Center is yours. Bob Thomas, an architect, I says, this is your, your opportunity in your lifetime to make a difference. This is an investment for 100 years. Bob, you pay it. I hired an architect as my deputy director. I said, I'll do two jobs as the historian. Your job is to make sure this is done well, that we don't disappoint the elected officials, the donors, the families. Dan Provo, here are the exhibits. You make sure it all works, and that we never let it look like a government building. To this day, I don't worry about paint, scratches in the walls of this place, because Dan Provo is staying up late at night worrying about it. He's gonna find the way to get it done. It's a team effort but it was an evolutionary process to learn how to do it. We now have the, the OHS, I call it the OHS, Entrepreneurial Business Plan, applied to government. We have over 25 nonprofits, 501C3s organized to support our different enterprises. Every one of our museums and sites around the state now has a 501C3 group, and through that, we find the partners to do things more efficiently. If I had to build a museum exhibit through the state purchasing process, it would take years, it would cost four times as much, because the purchasing people over at OMES don't understand the needs for a case to put a, uh, an object in. If we go through a 501 support group with private legs money, they just go buy it based on our specs. Happens quickly, it's cheaper, it's efficient. I put together a system, the legislators love it. The auditor, Gary Jones, used to send other agency peoples here to say, What's the OHS way of doing this? How can we raise the standards at at the health department or mental health department or corrections? A lot of people have had a hand in it. I get too much credit for it, but I've been here while this evolution has happened. We've now changed the culture. One reason I'm willing to to cut the the umbilical cord and say Bob Blackburn's going to drift off into space, and I think the mothership is in a good space and ready for new leadership because we've got these senior leaders. The board is in a good place. The culture of the organization is intact we've got the unity we've got some challenges the covid is we've we're already down probably a half a million dollars in revenue this year after a budget cut of 4% from the legislature but we're finding ways to deal with those challenges opportunities i'm now doing more interviews and speeches by zoom if i had discovered zoom 20 years ago i would have saved tens of thousands of miles of my car and lots of days where i'm driving to goodwill to give one speech to 40 people of a, of a rotary club but i was willing to do it Necessary at the time, but now we have new opportunities. And so the History Center came out of that, but that allowed us to use that same business model to raise $8 million for the museum in Enid. We're launching a new $10 million program for the Will Rogers Memorial. We're trying to finish a $60 million project in Tulsa called the Uncle Museum of Popular Culture. It would have been possible without the History Center and we're still learning. We're learning how to do it better. We are now in the top five in the country on the number of archival documents online free to the general public. By 2024 with a contract just signed with Ancestry.com, who are going to invest 2.5 millions of corporate money. Not going to be your taxpayer money. We found a way to make a deal where the corporation does it. Yeah, they might make a little money behind their firewall if people want to get to those newspapers around the world, but we're going to have it for free. You're going to be able to research well, you're Dallas, but my hometown of Edmond. Within by 2024, we can get into the Edmond Sun newspaper, and it'll be not just there, but searchable. The culture is in a good spot. We have the people to carry on. I think people recognize that we can pull off big projects. They trust us, so uh, I'm I'm confident that uh, we found a good business plan that will continue.
0: I guess before we go, how did the picture with Ken Burns come about? <laughs>
1: I, of course, I've I've done screenplays. I've worked on documentaries. I've had a special relationship with OETA since the 80s when I was historical consultant on a little project called Oklahoma Passage, probably before you were born. So I've been working with television. Of course, I grew up around television. So I've always been interested in, in how to tell stories through the medium, through a, a television set. And Ken Burns his interests overlapped with ours. So Civil War, yeah, we had 80 engagements in Oklahoma during the Civil War. So Ken discovered us in our collections that he could use to tell his story. And then as it overlapped even more on the Dust Bowl was specifically what brought us together. We started working with his staff and then to do the inaugural party, to launch those episodes of the Dust Bowl in American history, he came here to the History Center. We had lunch. I said, "Will you have lunch with my senior staff and some of my board members to inspire them. Yeah. So Ken and I sit right here in the boardroom next to where I'm sitting today and talk to them. We kept talking. The second time we got together, I said, hey, we're going to do this new museum on popular culture. He said, oh, my goodness, we're doing research on a new series on country music. You may have seen that. that appeared last year to rave reviews. Two of those episodes are based on the Oklahoma story. It ended with Garth Brooks and Reba and Vince, you know, our triumvirate there, and then going on to Toby and and Carrie and others. And there's no accident there was so much on Bob Wills, because we had the materials. Anybody in communication, whether it's a radio host or a historian or a documentarian, they're limited by their materials. We had the materials, we'd collected it, we had the stories, we had the interviews, we know where to go. And so Oklahoma had a huge presence in those films. So Ken and I became and it was at that day sitting around my board table that he said, well, here's my cell number. So if I still got Ken Burns cell number in my phone, and his staff came here. We said, here's our files. Here's our records. Here's what we know. We want the world to know about it. We don't need credit. Well, they gave us credit. We said, we don't care who does it. If you're doing it, that's great. You have a wider audience than we have. Tell the story. Of a Garth Brooks or a Vince Gill or a Woody Guthrie. Uh, Ken and I share uh, the same mission of telling stories. He does his through documentaries. I tell mine through exhibits and books and speeches, but we're doing the same thing. We're taking complex stories, trying to find the truth as much as we can through our own eyes with our own biases, and then presenting it. And so uh, Ken has been a good friend and I and I've given several commencement addresses. I was distinguished alum at OSU about four or five years ago. Well, I went to his commencement addresses because they said, Bob, you got 12 minutes to you know to address like 6,000 students. I didn't know at the time that Garth Brooks was in the audience. His daughter was graduating that year. If I'd known that, I would have been more nervous because uh, he and I have become friends over the years and he's helping us with our exhibit. I got on to, because Ken Burns is all over YouTube with his commencement addresses. And so I started studying the structure and I use that structure to really come up with a way to do my commencement speech in my 12 minutes that I had.
0: This has been such a delight. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Blackburn. Thank you very much.